0: Does he know Uh, FISA? Was he familiar with the policy? He he does, which is why he issued a presidential memo last week.
1: Does he even know he issued a presidential memo last week? Did he read it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I don't think so. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the, left of me, to the right here I am stuck in the middle with you yep yes I'm stuck from in from Pacifico Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK do. 90.7 FM in LA in, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, Palinville, New York 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ 90.1. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN 94.7. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ 97.3, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Thank you very much for joining us for the Bradcast Uh, from whatever blank hole country you might be listening from. (laughs) Oh, dear. Just breaking, the President of the United States has apparently referred to Haiti and Africa or countries within Africa as uh, blank whole countries. Starting
0: with an S, in case that's not clear what kind of hole he's talking about.
1: Yes, that during uh, bipartisan uh, conversations concerning... (laughs) Concerning DACA and immigration, complaining that we have, uh, why, asking, I guess, why Democrats want so many immigrants from blank whole countries. Uh, but he would be fine with having more from Norway, apparently. Gosh, I, I wonder
0: I wonder what the difference might be. Between...
1: I'm sure I have no idea what you're talking about, Desi Doyen, and I will thank you for keeping your uh, accusations of racism in check. <laughs> oh, my. Uh Bill McKibben climate 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 crisis leader and founder of 350.org is that uh, is that a good way to describe uh, Bill McKibben? Yes. Uh he's he calls um <laughs> he called the, what happened this week in New York City one of the biggest days in 30 years of the climate fight. New York City announces it will divest giant pension fund And sue the oil companies for damages. Earth's mightiest city now in full-on fight with its richest, most irresponsible industry. Big news. Just one of the stories coming up in our latest Green News Report with Desi Doyen. Yep. And uh, that'll be a little bit later in this hour. Uh, Some good news to go along with the otherwise terrible news coming out of Southern California. Here in the wake of uh, tragic mudslides that have so far killed uh, at least 17 folks amid torrential rains that struck in areas just plagued by the largest wildfires in state history. So that's coming up in a little bit. Also, an American-born white supremacist was recently arrested and charged um, with terrorism charges for preparing plotting to kill an untold number of his fellow Americans. But hardly anybody knows about this case, because unlike terrorists who plot to kill untold numbers of Americans, this one didn't have an Arabic name, I guess. He's just your average white guy from Missouri, like me, I guess, except for the stockpiling weapons in hopes of killing a whole bunch of Americans part.
0: And that whole neo-Nazi thing.
1: Uh, So uh, because his name wasn't Mohammed Akbar or something similar, uh, it would seem that uh, neither the DOJ nor the DHS nor the FBI bothered to even let anybody know about this disturbing case that came to light only at the end of the year and only really thanks to a reporter who just happened to notice it on the federal docket. We'll, We'll be joined shortly by pose Ryan Riley to discuss that story, what we know about it, what we don't, and frankly, why it is that we don't, why we know so little about it. But first, in what I think is actually related-ish news, today the U.S. House of Representatives voted to reauthorize Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, with changes that would be for the first time Uh, that would, for the first time, endorse warrantless searches of millions of Americans online and phone communications. That, according to the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, an amendment, they note, by... Congressman Justice Amash, Justin Amash, Republican from Michigan and supported by progressive civil liberties-minded Democrats as well, like Keith Ellison, also of Michigan. Uh, the amendment that would have prohibited such warrantless searches was defeated in a previous and an earlier vote today. Neither vote was along strictly partisan lines. The civil liberties advocates on both the right and left supported the Amash Amendment and opposed the bill that ultimately passed. Uh, But the bill must now be voted on by the U.S. Senate before reaching Donald Trump's desk. Elizabeth Goytine, co-director of the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, who testified before Congress on this issue last year, said the House just voted to turn the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act into a tool for domestic spying on Americans. The government obtains this data, without a warrant and in massive amounts based on a promise that it is not trying to access Americans communications. And why shouldn't we why shouldn't we believe the government when they say that?
0: Just trust them. They're from the government.
1: However, Goytine notes 25 256 members of the House think FBI agents should have warrantless access to Americans calls and emails even in investigations that have literally nothing to do with national security. The Senate should reject this assault on Americans' constitutional protections, she says, and take up legislation like the USA Rights Act that would end warrantless searches instead of endorsing them. Nonetheless, the final bill passed uh, by a vote of 256 to 164 in the U.S. House today, while... Congressman Amash's amendment was defeated. This morning, Donald Trump tweeted out concerns about the bill, although the White House has publicly backed its passage, but apparently forgot to tell the president about it. So Trump tweeted his concerns about this bill at the same time that the White House and his own administration have been out there pushing for this bill. So does Donald Trump even know anything about what is going on in his own administration? And if he doesn't, who does? It's troubling enough that uh, Trump seems to have no clue what is going on here, what his administration supports and what bills he is or isn't signing. But frankly, the other disturbing question here is if he doesn't know, who does know? Who is actually pulling the strings in this White House, in this administration? Uh, You heard Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the top was uh, riddled with questions today by journalists at the White House trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And you heard that uh, quote we played at the top where she said, well, of course, Donald Trump supports 702. That's why we issued a a memo by the the White House issued a memo. But uh, I don't know that the president even knows that memo went out. So let me explain. Here's what seems to have happened today. Um, According to the New York Times coverage from Charlie Savage and Nicholas Fandos, the House of Representatives voted on Thursday to extend the NSA's warrantless surveillance program for six years with just minimal changes, rejecting a years-long effort by a bipartisan group of lawmakers to impose significant new privacy limits when it sweeps up Americans' emails and other personal communications. The uh, vote centered on an expiring law, that's Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, that permits the government, without warrant, to collect communications of foreigners abroad from uh, United States firms like Google and AT&T. They can go to Google, they can go to AT&T, get this information because they can say, oh, this is from a foreigner, we're allowed to get their communications even though those foreign targets may be talking to Americans. Congress had enacted the law back in 2008 to legalize a form of once-secret warrantless surveillance program uh, that was created after the September 11 terrorist attack. They didn't change the program, they just made it so that it wasn't secret anymore and supposedly legal if questionably constitutional. The legislation approved on Thursday still has to go through the Senate, so it can still be stopped. There is a chance, if a small one, to block the extension of this law. But as the Times notes, fewer lawmakers there appear to favor major changes to this spying law, so the House vote is likely to effectively end this debate over 21st century surveillance technology and privacy rights that, that broke out in, uh, in 2013 following the leaks by the intelligence contractor Edward Snowden. And Congress did, in 2015, vote to end and replace another program that Snowden exposed, under which the NSA had been secretly collecting logs of Americans' domestic phone calls in bulk, all of them, as Snowden revealed, thanks to his whistleblowing, which resulted in that change by Congress and signed by President Obama at the time, but reform minded lawmakers from civil libertarian uh, on the civil, civil libertarians on both the right and the left who hoped to add significant new constraints for privacy reasons to the warrantless surveillance program they fell short on Thursday in their attempts to block the reauthorization despite its uh, arguably it's arguable constitutional maladies that violate the rights to privacy search and seizure etc the vote was a victory for the Trump administration and for the intelligence community and for no small amount of democrats Uh, which, uh, which opposed imposing these major new curbs on the program, and for Republican leadership in particular, House Speaker Paul Ryan, who had blocked the House from an opportunity to consider a less sweeping compromise package that had been developed by the House Judiciary Committee. Paul Ryan put the brakes on that. However, before approving the extension of Section 702, the House uh, voted to reject an amendment that proposed a series of overhauls. Among them was a requirement that officials get warrants. There's an idea that comes from the Constitution uh, that officials get warrants in most cases before hunting for and reading emails and other messages of Americans that are swept up. Supposedly, incidentally, while officials are wiretapping foreigners whose calls and emails face no such limitations under the program. So if they happen to be talking to an American person, those calls and emails will get swept up into this same dragnet.
0: And it does seem that if, oh, look, there are some Americans and they're not actually foreigners and we swept at their communications anyway, doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of uh, Protection barriers to that. For that.
1: Yeah, no, there there really isn't because, you know, there's no requirement to go get a specific warrant for this, which might be opposed So that's what happened. That's what passed. However, before it did pass, Trump contradicted his own White House and his own top national security officials in a Twitter post that criticized this same surveillance law, just as Congress was beginning to debate whether to approve it or not. And then two hours later, again, kind of in this case, out of nowhere, he appeared to reverse himself, demanding that lawmakers get smart. And passed this thing that he had opposed earlier in the day, his first tweet on the topic appeared to encourage lawmakers to support putting these limits on the law. He said House votes on controversial FISA Act today. He was that was that part of the tweet was in quotes, mimicking a chyron on the bottom of the screen during Fox and Friends this morning. On Fox News. And then he added, this is the act that may have been used with the help of the discredited and phony dossier to so badly surveil and abuse the Trump campaign by the previous administration and others? Question mark. So he was uh, (laughs) so he was talking about uh, what we know, the the Russian uh, dossier. Uh, And the the claims that there were ties between Russia and Trump, the Trump campaign and so forth. Um, But it was a direct contradiction to what his own administration had supposedly supported. And um, then a couple of hours later, he tweeted the reverse and told everyone that get smart. We need to pass this. So ask about the president's conflicting tweets. Paul Ryan uh, said that uh, Trump has always been in support of foreign surveillance. I guess he just didn't know about it. Ryan told reporters after the vote that his administration's position has always been really clear from day one, which is 702 is really important. It's got to be renewed. So maybe his administration supported it, but not Trump himself because nobody bothered to explain to him what Section 702 actually does and does not. Now, there is said to have been a phone call between all of this, between Trump and Ryan. Apparently, Ryan called Trump after his first tweet. At the same time, Nancy Pelosi, the House Democratic leader, she asked Ryan to pull the bill from consideration. But Republicans uh, battling uh, this last-minute push from uh, Conservative lawmakers, they gambled and they moved forward with a vote, both on the amendment to 702, which failed, and then the reauthorization, which passed with some help from Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, by the way, who also voted for it. After the approval, the ACLU and others uh, said the legislation will give more spying power to the Trump administration, which, of course, is just what they needed. Am I right, Democrats who supported this? John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, the U.S. Army General who had formerly served as Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security, he was reportedly spotted in a House cloakroom talking to members before the vote in a last-minute lobbying push. So he was out there pushing for this. But apparently nobody told the president. He was home watching Fox News while he was tweeting He posted that first tweet right after Fox News legal analyst Andrew Napolitano, the usually libertarian Republican, actually turned to the television cameras and said directly to the camera, Mr. President, this is not the way to go. And he added that Trump's woes began with surveillance talking about Uh, what, you know, Michael Flynn getting picked up in those conversations with and the also Russian
0: ambassador, his, his, his lie that the Obama administration was tapping him in Trump Tower and all that.
1: Right. Uh, a couple hours later, two hours later, in fact, after that reported conversation with Paul Ryan, in a follow-up tweet, uh, Trump uh, appeared to step back from what he had said earlier, and he said, uh, again, two hours later, With that being said, I have personally directed the fix to the unmasking process since taking office, and today's vote is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land. We need it. Get smart. Oh, boy. Uh, So, yeah, that's what uh, the Trump administration is up to, a president who has absolutely no clue what they are doing. Glenn Greenwald's. Uh, Of The Intercept said Trump's moronic, inconsistent tweets will dominate the FISA storyline today. It's fun, it's easy, but much more significant is the key role that leading Democrats are playing in handing Trump someone they claim is a lawless tyrant, vast, virtually unlimited domestic spying powers. And that's what they did today in the U.S. House. We'll see if it is stopped in the Senate. Uh, Too many of these Democrats are still on the 9-11 George W. Bush neocon bandwagon. You'd think many who might have maybe approved this sort of thing under Barack Obama, despite civil libertarians warning that Obama would not always be in office, that they're still approving this sort of thing, even under Donald J. Trump, who clearly has no authority over his own administration. Which is clearly able to do whatever the hell it wants, whenever it wants, and now they can continue doing it with impunity for another six years, at least if it passes in the uh, in the U.S. Senate. Because you know terrorism, but apparently only certain types of terrorism seem to be of much concern to lawmakers or to this administration. And that story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Late last week, Lori Pilger of the Lincoln Journal-Star in Nebraska wrote what seems as if it should have been a pretty major story. An alleged terrorist had been charged after an attack on an Amtrak train that apparently took place last October. As Pilger writes in her story, after uncovering documents unsealed by the FBI with absolutely no fanfare or publicity, the FBI says an armed 26-year-old Missouri man who breached a secured area to stop an Amtrak train in southwest Nebraska in October has links to a white supremacist group and expressed an interest in, quote, killing black people, according to the court documents. Taylor Michael Wilson of St. Charles, Missouri, is charged in U.S. District Court in Lincoln, Nebraska with terrorism attacks and other violence against railroad carriers and mass transportation systems. In an affidavit attached to the criminal complaint, FBI Special Agent Monty Zapluski said there was probable cause to believe that electronic devices possessed by Wilson and firearms owned by him have been used for or obtained in anticipation of engaging in or planning to engage in criminal offenses against the United States. In a remote area of Nebraska, just before 2 a.m. on October 22nd, an assistant conductor felt the Amtrak train suddenly breaking and searched for what was causing it, and he found Wilson in the engineer's seat of the follow engine playing with the controls, according to Saplewski. The conductor and others subdued Wilson, held him down, waited for deputies uh, from uh, Furnace and Harlan counties to arrive in Nebraska. These uh, This is an area that was so remote it took about an hour for them to arrive as they kept him held down. Zaplewski said Wilson, who has a permit in Missouri to carry a concealed handgun, had a loaded 38 caliber handgun in his waistband, a speed loader in his pocket, And a National Socialist Movement, that's the American neo-Nazi party, a National Socialist Movement business card on him when he was arrested. No idea that Nazis uh, carried business cards. He also had a backpack with three more speed loaders, a box of ammo, a knife, tin snips, scissors and a ventilation mask inside. He was traveling from Sacramento, California, to St. Louis, Missouri. He was later charged with felony criminal mischief and use of a deadly weapon during the commission of a felony. But incredibly, he was then released after securing a hundred thousand dollars bond. Two days later, after his release, according to the federal case, FBI agents searched his home in Missouri, found a hidden compartment with a handmade shield. And a tactical vest, eleven AR-15 ammo magazines with approximately a hundred rounds of ammunition, a drum-style ammo magazine for a rifle. Drum style allows you to put literally hundreds of uh, of rounds into your uh, into your rifle. Firearms, tactical accessories, hundred rounds of nine-millimeter ammo, approximately eight hundred and forty rounds of rifle ammunition white supremacy documents, paperwork, several additional handguns, rifle magazines, gunpowder, on and on and on. Sapuliski said they also found 15 firearms, including a fully automatic rifle that is essentially a machine gun, ammo and firearms magazines and tactical body armor in the newly unsealed federal case. The FBI wrote that investigators had found videos and PDF files on Wilson's phone of a white supremacist banner over a highway and other alt-right postings and documents on how to kill people. An acquaintance contacted by the FBI said that Wilson had been acting strangely since June. He had joined an alt-right neo-Nazi group uh, and uh, uh, while he was searching white supremacy forums online, apparently. The FBI said agents believe that Wilson had traveled with members of the group called to the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, Virginia, in uh, in August. You'll recall that rally where a woman was killed. Nineteen were injured when a man used his vehicle to ram a crowd of counter-protesters. That man was himself believed to be a white supremacist. An informant told the FBI that Wilson has expressed an interest in, quote, killing black people. So... He was then finally arrested again in late December, a day after the complaint was filed under seal in federal court in Nebraska before the terrorism charges were finally unsealed late last week. But despite the federal charges, Department of Justice didn't let anybody really know about any of this, even after the court documents and charges were quietly unsealed and the Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln Journal-Star reporter, Lori Pilger, just happened to notice it on a court docket website, I believe. Usually, writes HuffPost's justice reporter, Ryan Riley, when the FBI arrests a terrorist and the Justice Department charges them, it is a very big deal. Combating terrorism is one of the Justice Department's top priorities, he says, and terror cases are a great way for... Federal prosecutors and agents to make names and build careers. The press and the public are usually very interested in these sorts of cases. Officials will typically blast out a press release. And if it's a big enough case, they might even hold a press conference to announce it. The Justice Department, however, in this case, did not do any of it when uh, federal prosecutors unsealed these terrorism charges late last week against Taylor Michael Wilson. The 26-year-old white supremacist from St. Charles, Missouri, who breached a secure area of an Amtrak train in October while armed with a gun and plenty of backup ammo before setting off the emergency brake in a very remote part of Nebraska, sending passengers lunging as the train cars went completely black. But none of this has made a splash at all. The entire story barely made the uh, the national headlines. As Riley reports, the DOJ doesn't even appear to have tried to even sing their own praises after bringing these terrorism charges against this heavily armed and seemingly very dangerous terrorist. So why is that? Ryan Riley tried to figure it out and he joins us to explain what has what he has been able to learn. Ryan is um, HuffPost's senior justice reporter, where he covers criminal justice, federal law enforcement, and legal affairs. On that beat, he has been arrested, as I recall, in places like a McDonald's in Ferguson, Missouri, while covering protests there following the police killing of African-American Michael Brown. And he has been sent to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, though to cover it, uh, not yet to uh, <laughs> for a prolonged stay. Uh, he began covering the Justice Department back in 2009, and he was a 2017 Livingston Awards finalist for his reporting on jail deaths. He's based and joins us today, I believe, from Washington, D.C. Ryan Riley, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, listen, I want to ask you about this case because it's kind of it seems remarkable to me. Uh, you wrote about it, uh, tried to figure out why. Uh, the DOJ made no noise about this. You have another follow-up about it today. But before I get there, I just want to get your thoughts on on uh, what the Brennan Center for Justice is, describes uh, today as an expansion of the, uh, the NSA, DHS, DOJ uh, 702 spying program supposedly to wiretap foreign individuals, but which also picks up Americans without a warrant. Donald Trump did not seem to understand it at all when he tweeted uh, both... Against it during a Fox News show today and then later in favor of it before today's vote to expand that program in the U.S. House. You have any quick thoughts on either the program itself or the sort of insane response to it by the president of the United States, Ryan?
2: Yeah, I mean well it was obvious between obviously uh between his first tweet and his second tweet about the program, someone from the White House, I guess, got in touch with uh him or sort of tried to intervene and apparently there have been reports that he um, perhaps talked to Paul Ryan about this in between because that isn't the position that the administration has been insisting upon and the Justice Department has been advocating for uh pretty strongly um <laughs> on the hill and making yeah. sure that, you know, they, they know that they're strongly behind this and they want this they want this in place. Um and it was just sort of an incredible circumstance. It's hard to imagine happening under any other presidency where, because of what um, a Fox News host basically said to direct it at the president on the airwaves, it yeah. was actually, you know, addressed him from the airwaves, um, that, you know, the president of the United States would issue a statement effectively um, like this that um, – you know, undermined the entire case and that his uh, administration had been had been making to Congress.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of incredible because it, it was his specific administration that had been making the case that he just went out and said the opposite of, and it raises questions about who, if anyone, I guess, is actually in charge at the White House at this point. Uh, that th- that matter may come into play here to some extent. I don't know uh, on this white supremacist. Uh, being charged with terrorism that neither Donald Trump on Twitter nor the DOJ seems to have let anybody know about uh, in, in the public. Despite the guy clearly seeming to be a dangerous terror threat, you tried to figure out, Ryan, why that is. What did you learn?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the way I sort of got on this story was a little bit backwards because I mean, I didn't see this story pop up until I cover Justice Department closely, and you know, mm-hmm. that's that's my beat. So when I didn't see the story really pop up until until Friday, actually, is when I um, saw it. I was like, wait, what? How did I miss this? What's going on? Right. Um, federal prosecutors are. Charging a, a white supremacist with terrorism—that's a story I would, I would be, uh, I would be writing. Um, so you know, I look back at it, and I you know ended up talking to DOJ, talking to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and trying to piece together you know basically what what happened here. Um, and I mean, it, you know, essentially what it boils down to is that you know the U.S. Attorney's Office, which there are ninety-four of them across uh, the country, mm-hmm. um, in this case, they said that basically a guy a guy was off a guy who normally would have sent out a press release when this case was unsealed. Um, was off, um, which is you know okay. That's sort of a I suppose a understand or understandable or a, a plausible explanation. Um, but I, but is, I think what is it, it does it,
1: is it really is it Ryan the the fact that he was <laughs> off. I mean, is it does does that pass the smell test? I mean, the case has been I'm going on th- since October.
2: Yeah, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on on that just simply because I think it's a small office and I don't think they handle many of these cases. And okay. also, frankly, they hadn't put out any other press releases um, for any case, in fact, since uh, December 22nd. Okay. Um, and I think that, I mean, it might just simply be the fact that, you know, that might simply be the issue. Here. But the broader issue that it that it really drives that is that it, it, it's a demonstration, an illustration of exactly how differently uh, the Justice Department apparatus and you know the national security uh, apparatus of the, of the U.S. government uh, treats domestic terrorism in comparison to anything that remotely has a sniff of anything related to um, you know mm-hmm. basically Islamic terrorism or you know what the government would call um you know uh international terrorism or um terrorism in connection with uh designated foreign uh terrorist groups um yeah. and basically what that means is that it's a lot easier effectively to charge someone with a federal terrorism offense if there's anything um if they're if they're Muslim than it is if they're you know a white supremacist yeah. or, uh, or a white guy or somebody who's doing this um in in you know for uh, you know, basically a hate, hateful reason, if they're a neo-Nazi, because those sort of, there's not really uh, designated groups. We don't, because of the First Amendment, we don't designate uh, groups that are based in the United States as, you know, terrorist organizations. That would have a lot of consequences, um, and I think, you know, raises a lot of, you know, fundamental, obviously, First Amendment issues, and mm-hmm. there's some serious debate um, to be had about that. And, uh- you know, historically, you know that's something we get into trouble with when we have groups that are listed on government, you know, on government, you know, watch lists and that yeah. sort of thing. And
1: I and I want to ask um, you about that specifically. But here in this case, you you report that uh, uh, that the the terrorism cases and I guess he was eventually charged with uh, uh, t- terror charges here, right? I mean, so whether it makes was. yeah, and so whether it makes it difficult or not to to characterize some crimes that seem to be terrorism. To, for you know officials to call that terrorism, that almost doesn't seem to come into play here because he ultimately was charged with uh, with terrorism in this case. and yet you note that this case was almost completely handled by the uh, uh, the the local uh, FBI officials and prosecutors in Nebraska. Uh, you spoke with a former, a DOJ official from the National Security Division in Washington, D.C., that said that normally in terrorism cases you would bring in someone from D.C. from that National Security Division, but that does not seem to have happened here at all for some reason.
2: Well, yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of interesting things essentially happening here. (laughs) Basically, the only reason this is actually a federal uh, terrorism charge is Mm -hmm. because of the specific actions that that he took. Uh, the only reason that you know you're seeing all these headlines that it's a white supremacist charged with terrorism um, is because he took a specific action that is cov- that that is covered by federal terrorism law. What that effectively means is, you know, in a situation, um, if you sh- if you're a, if you're a white supremacist and you and you shoot a bunch of people and you commit a mass shooting, um, you're not gonna you're probably not gonna face terrorism charges in the same exact circumstances. If you're uh, if you're a you know if you Pledge allegiance to mm-hmm. ISIS and go and shoot a bunch of um, of people. You are going to face terrorism charges. There's not a terrorism statute that, uh, that broadly sort of outlaws domestic uh, terrorism. It's that, it's that material support hook that ultimately um, makes these terrorism charges, material support in charge of, in, uh, in support of a, of a uh, foreign terrorist organization. So those murders, you know, in that case, would be considered material support. But anything basically from, you know, retweets to murder can be uh, considered material support mm-hmm. in those cases. And you can, you, can, you can call them up front. You can say, you know, the it charges right on there, it says terrorism. Um, in this case In particular It was only because Of his particular actions That he um, Is facing a charge And because he Because of the target Of his attack And that it involved, interna- it involved Interstate commerce It involved uh, Specifically a, You know A, a railroad A, um, a, a train um, Right You know That's that's really the target That you know Would have Is the issue here If he had If he had tried To murder a bunch of people um, You know Just in a random place With a gun In a public place We wouldn't be looking at um, Terrorism charges here It's only because of the specific actions uh, in this case. So, um, so, so, that's what, know,
1: yeah. so that's what we see, for example, uh, during that uh, rally in Charlottesville, uh, when that white supremacist ran down, uh, killed uh, Heather Heyer, one of the counter-protesters, injured 19 others. That was a hate crime, not a, a terror crime, but then uh, a few, um, whatever it was, a month or so ago in New York City, when a guy uh, proclaiming allegiance to ISIS mows down a bunch of people in New York City, that's a terror crime and all of that, that, that distinction is simply because uh, the way the federal laws are written right now, international terrorism is terrorism, whereas domestic terrorism is not always terrorism. Is that sort of a way to describe it?
2: That is. And I mean, I think that the, 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 the struggle really here is that None of this is really clear to the public um, at all, and I think you know every time there's one of these incidents, um, there's this debate. You know, there's a lot of backlashes. Why aren't officials calling this mm-hmm. terrorism? And I mean, in in reality, I there's a, you got to kind of understand the position that federal officials officials are in. Um, I think a lot of people want to automatically snap to you know just a, a this is a you know officials <laughs> basically yeah. discriminating, which yeah. I mean they are discriminating, but it's because discrimination is sort of built in. Um, Into the law. I mean, this is basically how the law is written, and you know, it would basically, you know, really hurt their cases if they were to use the word terrorism in association um, with a with a case that doesn't involve a specific federal terrorism statute.
1: And I think I I do understand that and appreciate that distinction, and it seems clear that Congress needs to. Sort of expand, uh, expand the law so that uh, some of these cases can have, you know, more resources, at least uh, uh, even on par with the, the type of resources that international terrorism cases have, particularly since there is so much more domestic terrorism than there is international related terrorism in the U.S. But so I understand that point. But I got to say, uh, Ryan. Here, you know, we we do have it was on a train that was traveling in between states, so that should have triggered some sort of uh, terrorism clause right off the bat. And yet, this guy was released for two weeks, and I, I got to yeah. wonder if his name had been, you know, Muhammad Akbar, uh, or even if he had been an African American. Frankly, uh, would he have been released at all for for two weeks while the uh, while the FBI took their time to? Figure out what was going on in his background and so forth.
2: Sure, I mean I can say pretty definitively that if if um, if, if officials had any. Uh, suspicions up front, the remote suspicions that he might have even perhaps been inspired by a foreign terrorist group like ISIS. Mm -hmm. Um, No, he he almost certainly would not have have been released in this matter. Um, Because, I mean, along every step of the way, essentially, of this case, uh, it was being handled differently than a case uh, of international terrorism in that way. Um, You know, what's sort of different now with the Internet is that we, I think the way the law was sort of written and the way we think of these cases is though, you know that the, there's a foreign group that's directing people, and like you know, inner and this for they're you know they're overseas and they come here and that sort of thing. And that's really just not how it works these days. People don't have to have any actual contact with any actual you know overseas terrorist. They mm-hmm. can just read things on the internet, and suddenly it's an international um, terrorism case. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, I think that's I think Americans probably would support that by and large, um, but. It, it just shows this huge discrepancy between how we handle um, these sorts of cases because yes I immediately what would have happened if they had any suspicions uh, from the get-go that this was something involving Isis or which I mean effectively means that they're they're judging him based on his, his name his initial appearance and what he what he says so mm-hmm. in theory if this guy if this was a white guy who had you know said a lock bar when he did this or he had said something um, you know that that raised any of those suspicions I think it would be, would have fallen quickly into that international uh terrorist track it would have been treated that way um but effectively because you know they, what they saw is this you know <laughs> this white guy uh from missouri um mm-hmm. they this immediately went down that potential you know domestic terrorism track i mean i it's still it's still sort of shocking to me what happened
0: yes, um, yes. on the
2: local level here because that's just not something you hear about i mean and the charges that he was was facing i think you know criminal mischief um and one other local charge that was the the really, original
1: that was the original charge right when he was arrested after the train incident
2: correct and didn't really capture the extent uh, of the behavior here um and i think that's like that was what was really shocking to me and it mm-hmm. it, it I th- strong the fbi um affidavit in this case sort of strongly suggests um that the bureau might have been caught a little flat-footed here because um what you see is them not actually getting uh Search warrant uh, search warrant um permission until after uh, he was actually uh, released, which is sort of an extraordinary event that you you know you don't normally let um the the target of a terrorism investigation go home and potentially uh clean up some stuff and take away some stuff right. and throw out some stuff before um <laughs> you know that's not something you, you, you want to do you don't want to give him that opportunity right. um so even in the sort of in, unimaginable scenario in which someone was allowed to go home um you're you know, you wouldn't typically see that in a—I couldn't imagine ever seeing that in an ISIS-related uh, case.
1: Ryan Riley, I'm sure you recall um, back in uh, 2008, I believe it was, just after Obama took office, uh, Fox News and uh, and the right-wing just went absolutely nuts when the Department of Homeland Security released a report uh, warning about domestic right-wing terrorism And frankly, to their shame, uh, the Obama administration allowed themselves to be strong armed and uh, the DHS actually withdrew that report, even though it was commissioned during the George W. Bush administration, even though one warning about left wing domestic terrorism was released without consequence. Is this all uh, sort of a a piece with that thinking uh, and that strong arming by the right wing uh, media and so forth that we just simply don't categorize this sort of crime uh, in the same way that we categorize international terrorism and, uh, frankly, even, you know, uh, left-wing terrorism, anything that can be described as having to do with Occupy, the the Occupy movement or the Black Lives Matter movement or so forth. Isn't this all sort of a piece with that?
2: I think, yeah, I mean, you know, just to speak to your, you know, the point about left-wing uh, extremism, I mean, we had a terrorist, we had a left-wing terrorist attack earlier, uh, or last year, rather, against mm-hmm. members of Congress. We don't call it that, but that's what it was. I mean, it fits the federal definition. But what you had initially after, because I'll give a little background, this was the individual, obviously, who um, shot at, uh, P, the uh, sort of Bernie Sanders supporter who shot at mm-hmm. um, individuals, uh, Republicans who were practicing for a softball game. Um you know, we had a, a member of Congress severely injured um, in that
1: Steve incident. Steve Scalise, yeah, um, almost died. Correct. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I mean, and I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, you look back at 2017, and you're like, wow, that happened last year. So much happened last year. Yeah. But But um, in that case, I mean, that, and what was strange about that is, you know, the suspect in that case was dead, but we still had, for some reason, this refusal or this um, reluctance, I suppose, on behalf of federal officials uh, to call this terrorism. Um, and they said, in fact, uh, I believe they said. You know, proactively that this was not a terrorist, or they found no connection to terrorism, and they were sort of speaking in that in that the framework of um, you know of a of an international terrorist incident. Yes, they didn't find any of that, but I mean, you look, you know, plain as can see, if you look at that federal definition of of terrorism and domestic terrorism, this fits the case. I mean, that was you know it was inspired by this was political violence, Mm -hmm. is what that was, and it was. yeah, I mean, it was a terrorist act, but we just, it, it didn't get necessarily called that or framed that way in certain circles. Um,
1: and and, and how—well, yeah, uh, I've just—I've got uh, a minute or so here, i got to wrap up, but how, how much is—I mean, we know that uh, Donald Trump, no matter how many of these incidents happen, he's not going to uh, really tweet about them, he's not going to regard them in the same way that he regards anything that even has a whiff of having anything to do with, you know, al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, but— Uh, But how much is the media itself? How much are we to blame here as well? After all, word, you know, finally did get out about this late last week, and yet it seems to have been picked up by very few media outlets. I think at best I saw it come up on a on a crawl or something at the bottom of the screen on CNN or MSNBC. But, you know, again, had it had a had the guy had a Middle Eastern name, is there any doubt that? It would have made much more of a splash even in, uh, even in cable news. In other words, I understand the legal distinction, but what explains the, the media distinction with the way we, we deal with these cases?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think from the get-go, just like the law enforcement reaction, um, it would have been different had this involved um, a Muslim uh, suspect. The media reaction, actually, you know, definitely would have been as well. And I, you know, we might even be having debates about what you're allowed to bring on Amtrak at this point. I mm-hmm. mean, which is something that, you know, obviously it just sort of. I mean, no, I didn't. I didn't hear about this incident in, in October. I don't think a lot of people did either because no. it wasn't covered as a terrorist incident immediately. Um, I think though that there is a close, oh. I, you know. The media certainly has a has a, has a role and so blame to take here, but I do think that, um, you know, in all honesty, I think that the the media narrative is largely shaped by the the definitions that. Federal officials use, and if they're not calling something a terrorist attack, it seems like a political choice for reporters to make. If they're going to call something a terrorist attack, that you know that the that the public, or rather that you know, police officials aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's sort of a disservice to to viewers or readers when you know maybe that's not that's not a, you know they don't when their viewers don't understand why. Um, you know, something that looks like a terrorist attack um, is not being described in in those words. So maybe it, it really is something that the media needs to take a look at and consider whether they do, you know, start calling things terrorist attacks and say, or at least explain to their audience why federal officials won't call it a terrorist attack. Yeah. Um, because I think that would be would be beneficial because you know just because of the way the law is set up, that sort of com- shapes the conversation that we we have around these things. And you know, in in uh, what. You know, former officials tell me, like, um, you know, Mary McCord, who used to head up the National Security Division, is that she, you know, she'd like to see it sort of elevated to the same moral plane, mm-hmm. um, and that's really only possible uh, if we, if federal officials were a little less constrained um, in being able to label these things terrorist events, which really would only happen if there was an actual federal law that outlawed domestic terrorism writ
1: large. Right. Uh, that, that of course, doesn't get us in the media off the hook for for not calling it what it is and not, uh, you know. Giving Giving it the same kind of coverage that it deserves, which is why I'm greatly appreciated. You try to track down what the hell happened here with this other case, uh, and with your follow-up today headline, there's a good reason feds don't call white guys terrorists, says DOJ domestic terror chief. In which you explain uh, the difference in the laws, and frankly, how those laws need need to change. But I think the media should step up and and you know not wait for uh, federal officials to tell us how to report. On these stories, by the way, uh, you know, as much as uh, Obama was uh, criticized by the uh, by the right wing and their fake media claiming that he was taking away gun rights and everything else. It was Obama himself who expanded gun rights to allow them to be carried on Amtrak trains, as I recall, pretty early in his administration. Just. Wanted to mention that since you brought up, uh, you know, yeah. guns on trains and whether we would de- be debating whether they shouldn't be allowed on trains. It was Obama, Obama, who allowed them in the first place. Uh, anyway. Terribly interesting story. Thank you for giving it coverage, Ryan Riley. I hope you'll uh, join us again more often in the future. Ryan Riley is HuffPost's senior justice uh, reporter covering criminal justice, federal law, law enforcement, and legal affairs. You can and should fo- find him and follow him on the Twitters at Ryan J. Riley. And of course, you can find his work at HuffingtonPost.com. Really appreciate you joining us today, Ryan. Sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, running late, so quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and The Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com/donate today. That's bradblog.com/donate and thanks. Oh, so much I wanted to talk to uh, <laughs> Ryan Riley about I know so, so much, much to talk about topic. Well I so guess that's time. what tomorrow is for And tomorrow and tomorrow as long As uh, you folks stop by bradblock.com Slash donate uh, to help us stay on the air, to make sure we do have it tomorrow. All right, we got to get to it right now. Our latest green news report. It's our worst fear coming coming to life for us right now.
0: Record rain and deadly mudslides hit California in the wake of record wildfires. Trump administration reverses expansion of offshore drilling, but only for Florida. Plus,
1: today, New York City is ending that decades-long pattern of deception and denial by holding these fossil fuel companies to account.
0: New York City sues the oil industry for climate change damages and will divest from fossil fuels.
1: All of that divestiture and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And
0: I'm Desi Doyan.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment these companies knew as far back as at least the 80s and perhaps earlier that burning fossil fuels would have ruinous impacts on the planet's atmosphere and that it would change our climate exposing the globe to sea level rise increased heat and severe storms what do you have against disaster capitalism sir this is your green news report So, Desiree, not long ago, a lot of us in Southern California were feeling pretty lucky given the size of the fires out here. The fact that uh, 44 people had been killed in Northern California, but the death rate was much lower down here. Now we have these floods in the wake of that huge fire in Southern California And it's clear we really weren't lucky at all.
0: Yes, it's true. In Southern California, rescuers are now racing to find survivors that were trapped by mudslides and flash floods in areas of Santa Barbara County that had been stripped of vegetation just last month in those record wildfires. Torrential rains on Tuesday night at one point, dumping nearly an inch of rain in only 15 minutes, triggered powerful rivers of mud that demolished more than 100 homes while residents slept. At least 17 people. People are confirmed dead as of airtime. That number is likely to rise. More than a dozen are still missing.
1: And is it fair to say that had we not had that huge wildfire in the area that was struck by rain, we would not have seen those mud flows and those deaths?
0: It's very likely. In a press conference, Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown said the devastation looks like a war zone.
1: The only words I can really think of to describe what it looked like was it looked like a World War I battlefield. It was literally um, a carpet of mud and debris everywhere with huge boulders, down trees, power lines, uh, wrecked cars.
0: That same storm system also shattered San Francisco's rainfall record set back in 1872. This storm's destruction comes in the wake of the announcement that 2017 set a record for climate-related extreme weather disasters that cost the United States $306 billion in economic losses.
1: And frankly, untold numbers of lives. And I gotta say, as far as I know, Donald Trump hasn't said one damn word about what's happened out here in California.
0: In politics, Trump Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has reversed a widely condemned proposal to expand offshore drilling, but only for Florida, not any other state. That was after a meeting with Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott. In a statement, Zinke said, quote, Florida is unique and its coasts are heavily reliant on tourism as an economic driver.
1: Yeah, much more unique than those crappy coasts on California, Washington, Oregon, Maine, North Carolina, South Carolina, Who cares about them?
0: Florida's Democratic Senator Ben Nelson, a longtime opponent of offshore drilling, called the reversal, quote, a political stunt orchestrated by the Trump administration to help Rick Scott, who is expected to challenge Nelson for the Senate in November.
1: Trump administration? Political stunts? not possible.
0: Democratic and Republican governors of coastal states are also asking to be removed from the offshore drilling expansion since all of them also have billion dollar tourism industries that would be harmed by an oil spill. The decision to exempt only Florida in an apparent political favor could also be illegal, violating strict procedures that bar federal agencies from arbitrary and capricious actions giving ammunition to environmental law groups and states who plan to challenge the administration's offshore drilling Drilling. Finally, in a major move, New York City announced on Wednesday it is suing five of the world's largest oil companies for damages caused by climate change and announced that the city's massive pension funds will divest from all fossil fuel investments by 2022. The lawsuit alleges that the oil companies knew that burning their product would cause dangerous global warming and lied about it. Repairs and resilience work to harden infrastructure against extreme weather disasters and rising seas is projected to cost the city more than $20 billion in a press conference, the city's chief sustainability officer, Dan Zarilli noted that fossil fuel investments have underperformed the market recently and characterized both moves as an economic imperative.
1: The impacts of climate change are no longer theoretical. It's not just happening far away. It's here and it's now. We're already spending billions to protect this city, and much more will be needed this century to protect New Yorkers. And that's why the city's lawsuit filed last night in federal court is seeking billions in damages to ensure that our city will be ready to withstand these impacts.
0: The lawsuit is very similar to lawsuits that clawed back billions in damages from the tobacco industry.
1: Go get them, New York City. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your news report it's up to you new york
2: new york
1: yes new york York. (laughs) you can do it it's up to you it is thank you very much desi Doyen. Uh, one quick update uh the number of missing in the mudslides out here in santa barbara has been revised it had been over a dozen now it's down to Eight at this point. Missing. Yes,
0: that's good news.
1: Uh, I suppose that's good news. There's still seventeen dead, so uh, that is good news that none of those uh, found uh, had been found dead. But there are still eight missing. Hopefully, they'll be found in shelters somewhere. Um, I got to get out here, but uh, very quickly, Matthew W. comes on board today with a pledge for a monthly subscription to the Bradcast at bradblog.com slash donate. I wanted to say thank you, Matthew. And apparently it's a big day for Matthews as a different one. Matt F. writes in with his donation to say, I will do what I can to keep you going. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt and Matthew both. Uh, Greatly appreciated. My thanks to those of you who have done the same by stopping by. Bradblog.com/slash/donate today to support your friendly neighborhood broadcast and to help <laughs> help to keep us on your public airwaves as long as possible. Signing up for a monthly pledge of support for any amount you like greatly helps us, as does a one-time donation. But monthly pledges help us decide how much longer we can keep going here. So that's bradblog.com slash donate. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ryan Riley of Huffington Post, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad blog that is it until we meet again I'm Brad Friedman good luck world